0: listening to the New Books Network, and this is the Drugs Addiction Recovery Podcast. My name is Lucas Rickard, and welcome, 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 everyone. We're discussing Afghanistan and opium today. So let me introduce you to James Bradford. James studies U.S. foreign policy, illicit drug trade, and issues related to state building, as well as globalization and economic development in South Asia and the wider world. So he teaches classes at Babson College and Berkeley College of Music on the global drug trade, human rights, political and social revolutions, as well as U.S. foreign policy in the wider world. He's a trained historian, and he was awarded his Ph.D. from Northeastern University. James is here to talk about his brand new book, *Poppy's Politics and Power, published by Cornell University Press. James, it's amazing to have you here, and thanks so much for chatting today.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So we're going to kick off uh, with the cover of your book. It's an endless field of poppy plants, and it's really visually striking. So how is it that you got hooked on this type of history? Um, I, a lot of it
1: started as an undergrad. I took a class on Latin American history and was really fascinated by sort of the cocaine politics. Um, and from there, it just seemed like there was a big disconnect between sort of the history of drugs and sort of empirical research and really sort of policy. Um, and I think that sort of got me going to dig deeper sort of what were the disconnects between sort of the reality of drug use of the drug trade, drug production, and what we're sort of told as kids and as adults, um, you know things like dare program where we're sort of painted this very sort of black and white picture of, of drugs. And I think from there that just sort of inspired me to, to really dig. And, and, uh, I'm hooked <laughs> at this point. Um, it, it, it's, you know, I think once you, you really sort of dig into this stuff and you realize how interconnected it is into, uh, and integrated into our lives for, for good and bad, it's, it's hard to, to, to ignore it. And I think that's really sort of the inspiration for me.
0: I remember the D.A.R.E. programs and the Just (laughs) In No. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Um, Yeah, (laughs) You, you know, you do some really uh, deep dives here. And uh, when it comes to opium, uh, often we think about, heroin in the streets in the 1970s and 1980s in, in the U.S., but it's got an origin, and the origin is uh, often Afghanistan. And so, your book, you, you recast, I suppose, um, and reevaluate opium in Afghanistan. So, can you tell us a little bit about... Um, what's been the problem with how historians or others um, have regarded uh, opium in Afghanistan. And I, and I suppose just follow up on that. Uh, how did you try to fix this, mm-hmm. this approach?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, well, I think the big thing is that when I started my PhD and started sort of digging into the drug trade, uh, it was And I had talked to a lot of people and interestingly talked to a lot of people in the DEA um, and they all kind of were like, well, we don't really know anything about Afghanistan. And it was pretty obvious that there was no historical inquiry whatsoever. Um, Almost all of it started post 1978, the Afghan Soviet war. And it just seemed really shocking to me that you had this massive drug trade that is – you know, really the source of much of the world's illicit heroin, of which it just starts in 1978. And it seemed really odd for me. So that was sort of like the the impetus to dig and to go further and to sort of see where, like, what were the historical foundations. And I think um, there were some really, if you read some of the sort of drug policy literature, whether it's stuff that's produced by, uh, you know, UNODC or even CGAR, which is one of the main organizations, sort of anal- uh, analyzes sort of the contemporary issues in Afghanistan. It was sort of like this explosion of drugs has just happened in Afghanistan. And it just seemed alarming to me that this was all a byproduct of the last 40 years. So my attempt was to sort of really think about what were the factors that shaped where we are now and and i think there was there was sort of like a big point in this is that a lot of the the policy literature um and government uh literature really sort of emphasizes that there's this sort of like antagonism between the illicit drug trade and government it's sort of like this is the enemy of stability and democracy um Mm -hmm. and it was sort of like the antithesis of the state like this was one of the things that was holding back afghanistan from being this sort of stable state And my research, I think, has shown that it's a little bit more complicated than that, was that that there was actually a a fairly long period where drugs were part of the process of state formation. They tried for decades to become a legal producer for the international market for pharmaceutical companies Hmm. um, and then adopted um, sort of these international norms of prohibition of drugs. And it sort of seems interesting to me that you have a government... In a system which has largely prohibited drug use and drug production, yet can do nothing to stop it. Um, and so that really sort of forced me to think about sort of the ties of state formation and I think these deeper questions about what does it say about drug control and sort of the legitimation of state power? Um, is there a rejection of, of sort of these these policies that try to literally eliminate uh, a valuable export um, in, in Afghanistan. And so that was sort of one of the reasons that I wanted to sort of dig and sort of integrate it into the process of the state. And I think the other thing that was sort of big here was there's always these myths about Afghanistan as sort of this like mountainous region that's just sort of isolated from the world. And I think my project really kind of, Situates Afghanistan as a as entangled in mm-hmm. the global processes of whether it's the drug trade, what's happening with like the colonial drug trade in South Asia, and then the sort of shifting tides that occurs uh, in the later decades, and even drug control. And while it's not sort of fully integrated in the sense that you might have with you know say the United States, which has a very in, large influence in shaping drug policy, it, Afghanistan's still there, and it's still influenced by. The drug production by the global drug trade by drug policy, and so I think it was it was kind of trying to put Afghanistan in the situation that it's there. It was part of this process, and that that process actually influences and catalyzes the political and social issues, which in turn also sort of shapes the illicit drug trade. And sort of one of my things that's I, I, sort of like a tension that's always throughout the book is there's always government officials in Afghanistan who are like, why isn't this legal? Like, why Mm. are we not legalizing opium? And even you you see this a lot of State Department people in the United States and even uh, officials in certain segments of the UN who are like, yeah, that kind of makes sense. You know, it's a poor country. This is clearly a very good export. Why then do they adopt more sort of uh, coercive measures of drug control? Um, And this is what, you know, the, the adoption of these principles and these sort of legislative um, elements that we start to see particularly in the 1970s are largely a consequence of the in- engagement with international drug control of the, you know the shifts in in the global drug trade so that was sort of the the big purpose uh, uh, of sort of putting Afghanistan within a broader history and of course it's illicit drugs and illicit drugs is not purely national, so it has to be tied to issues in Iran and Pakistan, India, and as well as sort of consumption in in Western Europe and the United States that all is influencing and shaping what's happening in the the country.
0: It's super amazing, and I mean, I suppose it can't be an an easy project to research. Um, What kind of troubles did you face um, when working on this project? I mean, do you travel to... The, this part of the world? Did you, did you have to dig into archives? Uh, how I mean mm-hmm. if other people haven't written about this subject matter. No. How do you feel about it?
1: Well, uh, yeah, I mean, there, there's an obvious issue as an historian. I think some of there's so there's, there's sort of twofold issues here. One is in Afghanistan in the sort of post war, even though it's still sort of going on. So maybe that's sort of the incorrect way to think about it, but it, you know, it's a conflict zone, it's a difficult right. place to travel and do research. Um, and it doesn't really have the capacity of archival research that you have in other parts of the world some of that's a byproduct of the state not keeping great records some of that is the loss of archival records as a byproduct of war of sure you know destruction of the stuff um so that's one element um the other aspect is is going to Afghanistan was difficult. So I I think one of the challenges was that I spent a lot of time at U.S. archives just building the narrative. I had no idea what this was. I wasn't going off of anything. So it was really sort of digging um, into U.S. And then it evolved uh, into sort of British archives, started to change this. And then the Library of Congress turned out to be really fascinating because Mm. they actually had tons of Dari language, Afghan sources. Uh, government books um, that were not in Afghanistan, that were largely preserved in the Library of Congress. And so it was sort of this piecemeal process of sort of like figuring out um, the narrative. I think the challenge of this was that it's it, given the sources, a lot of it's driven by sort of the U.S. perspective, just because there's much more um, archival records Um, And it's it's certainly a tension that I I, I struggle with throughout the book and having to sort of, you know, how much of this is, do I read along the archival grain and how much of this do I really sort of like think about as a byproduct of the purely American perspective and how much of this is sort of, you know, the objective collective of information from someone in the State Department or the DEA or something like that. So it was a tension. It was definitely a tension. Um, And it was also a struggle doing some archival research in Afghanistan just because, uh the national archives and Kabul was uh it's gotten better from what i hear i haven't been back in in four years but um you know it's a it, largely a basement full of records and files that were really sort of not catalogued essentially um mm. and it, so that was a, a struggle for me and plus as a as a foreigner and you know as an american there was sort of this you know, there's a lot of drinking tea and sort of waiting around to to get access um So that was a struggle, and there was a lot of different archives and different sources that I had to sort of find and go about trying to get different avenues. And I think that's part of the reason why, and we'll probably talk about this at the end, about sort of like what's next, is I think there's probably a lot that I haven't uncovered. And, you know, I I think as I get more access to information and new resources, it's going to expand new avenues of research. So, But there were a lot of challenges, no doubt, Mm -hmm. putting this together, yeah.
0: So I want to turn back to something you said a little bit earlier when mm-hmm. when you kind of, you picked up on this idea of the Afghan state's uh, close relationship with opium producing. And mm-hmm. I suppose uh, the question that occurred to me is how should we as um, people in the West, how should we be thinking about the relationship between the Afghan state and opium um, in terms of uh, policy in terms of uh, historical perspectives? Um, yeah, I think it's a good, it's a really good
1: question. I think it's a challenge for, um, for people to sort of understand be- because so much of what's happening in Afghanistan today is sh- or, or the historical perspective is shaped by the contemporary. Hmm. Um, and I think so many people look at the lens of Afghanistan through what we see now. And I think one of the things that I want people to understand is that there's a there's a more complex relationship surrounding just sort of drug policy and drug diplomacy that's integrated into economic development um, into the Cold War. I mean, this is one of the really interesting things. Um, you know I talk about this in two of my chapters about how the United States had really used drug control as a vehicle to exert diplomatic influence in Afghanistan, a country which was neutral in the Cold War. And so in that sense, um, drug control becomes vehicle to exercise agency for the Americans in this place that they had nothing before. I mean, prior to 1945, the United States has no diplomatic relationship with Afghanistan. It's largely through Iran. Hmm. Um, And so that drugs becomes a way, way to sort of like lubricate this relationship and make it work better. And this leads to the huge Helmand Valley Development Project, which is the largest uh, really, sort of largest American presence um, in terms of sort of building a, an American style uh, system in Afghanistan, and that's sort of juxtaposed with what's happening in other parts of the country where the Afghans are using the Soviets to do other sort of projects. So, it's 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 integrated in 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 sort of these broader diplomatic and political issues. I think also what people need to understand about the U.S. and Afghanistan is that this relationship goes back quite a long way. And I think many Afghans today feel a sense of, I think, undue or um, there, there's a sense of shame about what's happening as if as if the the, the current opioid problem that exists in this country in, in Afghanistan, which is certainly not unique, given what's happening in the U.S., mm. Um Is entangled with the issues with the United States. I mean, the failure of the Afghan state in the 1970s was due in some part to the failure of the state-building project in the Helmand Valley and in other parts of the country where people started to reject the state system. Um, And so, I think there's a there's a there's we have to sort of think about what American foreign policy is trying to achieve in these countries. Um, And I think there's also limitations to that perspective. Is also how does American power get um, exerted by local forces? How is it sort of consumed and then dispersed by the Afghan government, by local leaders who are using resources and um, people to their advantage, whether it's for nation building or it's purely for profit. And I think it's it's sort of understanding the influence and the impact that policy that American foreign policy can have, but also the limitations and that how, you know, giving $500 million for a development project can ironically, I suppose, end up leading to the Helmand Valley becoming the largest producer of opium in the world, just in terms of a region. I mean, it's a massive opium producing region where, you know, there's, there's this legacy of American economic development that, you know, coincides with us.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, you brilliantly unpick the, the relationship between the U S and, and the Afghan state. Uh, but I suppose one thing that, that jumps out of me is whether or not this is too narrow a framework to mm-hmm. think about opium. And I mean, other scholars, I suppose, have suggested that we need to broaden the perspective uh, in, in sort of, um, what do you call it, bilateral negotiations, and instead of just thinking about the U.S. and the Afghan together. How do you conceptualize um, opium and the Afghan state?
1: Yeah, good question. I think some of this is a byproduct of sourcing. Uh, um, I try to... So my PhD dissertation was largely looking at the U.S.-Afghan relationship, and I think when I went back and started expanding upon the project, um, this was incorporating sort of the British legacy and the colonial legacy in South Asia. Um, the UN also looms large, and this is an interesting place to do archival research and to find mm-hmm. stuff. And it's a place that I'm, you know, actually going back in a couple of weeks. Um, that there's other voices that sort of come in to understanding sort of big moments. For example, I have a chapter on the, the uh, ban of opium in Badakhshan in 1958, and the U.N. has a, a, a different take on what's happening um, and even different departments within the U.N. Um, so I think there, there's certainly uh, uh, a valid argument that, there, that this is too narrow. Um, but I think a lot of this is a byproduct of just the sourcing and the project as it was um is it possible that this will expand i hope so i hope mm-hmm. i hope i do or i hope someone else picks up on the nuances um that exist within these dialogues um, mm-hmm. i mean that's what we do and so i i hope that i, I hope that someone does if if not me <laughs> someone else <laughs>
0: yeah i mean i certainly don't mean it as a criticism um, no
1: no i think it's i think it's a va- I mean it's it's something that i i even address in the introduction in a in a short way that this is that this is a limitation of the book um and a lot of this is because it's it's a challenge to to find some of these sources um and the US really turns out to be and the US and the UK in particular turn out to be sort of big influences um, you know, it's like I, one of the big questions uh, that I often get when I speak about this. Like, what about the Russian perspective? Sure. Um, and I think that's that that's really really important. And I, you know, I don't I don't speak Russian. I I don't you know, I yeah. wouldn't be capable of doing archival research. Um, and I think that's an important question um, that I I search. I I try to find stuff um, that would sort of augment. Uh, these arguments. And so it's there. Um, I don't know how to find it. I'm sure somebody has. Um, so
0: yeah, I guess, uh, I mean, not to go on too much about this, but but conceptually there's been criticism of too much drug scholarship has been U S oriented and it's time to decenter from the United States a a little bit. Um, chapter four though, just to change directions, uh, wonderfully uh, called East meets West. And then you refer to hippies and hash. <laughs> uh, so in terms of the counterculture and in terms of the 1960s, 1970s, what is it that uh, really pops with with this chapter, chapter four?
1: Yeah. Um, I, you know, I think this is really where you start to see Afghanistan sort of entering um, new markets in terms of drug production. Um, and, I think there's an interesting element here is that, and to respond to that, that, that what you were talking about earlier about sort of too much U.S. focus on this, um, I think there's also an element of too much sort of government focus. And I think this is sort of an interesting, um, an interesting chapter, because you really have this sort of, this wave, uh, you know, legitimate wave of tourism, much of it. To use you know cheap and really potent hashish mm. um, chars, which is sort of the local form of hashish in Afghanistan and it shapes and it's kind of interesting because it 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 brings Afghanistan into sort of the global system and all of a sudden many people in the western markets become more cognizant of the potential for this to be a really great source of hashish and then in turn opium so it's i see it as a really sort of critical point in the history of afghanistan where many people in afghanistan start to come to recognize uh the global potential of this product and they start to adjust accordingly i mean you see this in terms of you know there was always there always is there still is a, a culture around hashish use um but producers start to change how they produce the drug to, to increase output, to increase supply, to meet the, this growing demand. And and this is an indication of the this sort of growth of, of, in this case, the hashish trade, mm-hmm. um, which in turn ends up shifting over the course of the 1970s away from hashish into heroin and, and, mm-hmm. uh, and opium. And so I think this is sort of a critical point where uh, – that consumer market from the West really is felt in Afghanistan. And I also talk about sort of the political and social and cultural impact that this has. Because um, this also sort of, you know, this has a consequence of um, fitting into this this increasingly tense political environment that's occurring in the 1960s um, where people are becoming more critical of the government and also the government is struggling to maintain um, control over certain aspects of the population. And in this case, sort of the West becomes defined by hippies. I mean, it's really interesting. Some of the cartoons that are using there, you sort of see that this is what the West has to offer is a sort of like decadent, indulgent, um, you know, overly permissive culture where they really just care about using drugs and that's sort of it. Um, and so it's, I think it's a really complicated, but also really sort of interesting period in Afghan history where they that there's 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 a commodity exchange occurring that's important that's sort of the core but there's also sort of this cultural and political uh issue that sort of underscores this as well
0: yeah i just got to flag up for listeners too and uh, future readers of the book that um it's it's full of some clever and and visually stimulating cartoons that <laughs> that underline uh some of the the major points of the book but mm. um so, if you're cool with it, I want to ask you about the present moment yeah uh, yeah, definitely rather, rather than um, rather than the book itself, but so look the the u s as we are fully aware, is in the midst of a, an opioid crisis. Um, so I have to ask what kind of lessons uh, your book um, suggests about about contemporary society
1: Yeah, good question um. I think a lot of this goes back to what I said at the beginning, is that I, I what's happening in the U.S. is not unique to the U.S., um, that the opioid problem is everywhere. It's a universal problem. Um, I mean, not just Afghanistan, but Pakistan and India. India is having a big issue. I mean, we were both just in China a few weeks ago, and China's having a really large increase in, in the consumption of these products. Um, yep. So I, I think there's a, a need to sort of really sort of, address sort of the international drug policy and what is it trying to accomplish. And I think one of the things that my project I think does is it looks at really sort of the supply side theories that sort of enforced like rooting out production will eliminate the drug trade. And I think there's limitations to that perspective. And I think that goes back to, um, really addressing the need of demand and also sort of the limitations of, of just drug policy, like what are the cultural, social, and political issues that are leading people to need or use these drugs. Um, I think that's one aspect of it, is is sort of like maybe thinking in new way is about rather this as like a criminal problem or hmm. an economic problem, but really as a healthcare problem. I think that's one way to think about it because Afghanistan is, is also going through a really big opioid problem at the present moment. Um, I think the other aspect of this uh, that I think is really critical um, is that the lines between the illicit and the illicit trade are really blurred. And I think we've we've really spent a great deal of time, and I I mean this in terms of the government, sort of distinguishing between this is sort of the legal trade and this is the illicit trade. And I think what we're seeing happening in all over the world is that, that drug use really doesn't it doesn't depend on the legal or the illegal, that it's uh, that it's that it functions within both of these spaces. And I think we need to sort of address that and transcend those issues um, in terms of just use and demand and how the legal and the illegal or the illicit and the illicit trade sort of function within the same landscape. And, I mean, you see this with opioids. You see this with heroin in the United States where a large amount of users who started – with prescription narcotics are shifting to illicit drugs um, and then going back again. Uh, and so, you know, I think there's, there's a sort of need to sort of address the bigger picture of sort of the drug trade, maybe as something that sort of incorporates the illicit and the illicit drug trades into like one
0: cohesive whole. Hmm. It's fascinating stuff. And I, I fully agree. Yeah. Yeah. What, so, you've gotten this book done, and uh, you said that there's the, all these archives um, in in Kabul uh, that you visited, mm-hmm. and you sort of alluded to um, future projects on the horizons. Have you identified sort of one angle or one one possible topic? Um I at the
1: present moment I'm on about three different topics. <laughs> um so I, I'm sort of I I don't other than chapter four, which talks about um hash, hashish and chars, which is like I said, the Afghan sort of form of hashish. I, I don't dig too deep. A lot of the centers around opium. Um so I, I'm digging more into cannabis um and trying to sort of go beyond that periodization that I have where I sort of dig in the 1960s and 70s. And I'm, I'm trying to sort of go back a little bit. Um, that's one project that I'm working on. The other project is, and I, I almost think it's more interesting. Um, there's this whole sort of nebulous space where confiscated drugs in Afghanistan get sold to pharmaceutical companies Mm. And it's kind of shady, and it's really interesting and fascinating, and I, I allude to it in the book every once in a while, but it's an it's it's an ongoing feature of the drug war. It's sort of like this trade that exists based off of the seizure of these drugs, and these drugs often don't get destroyed. They get sold to pharmaceutical companies, and so I want to sort of dig into – Sort of the approaches from pharmaceutical companies that, mm. and their relationships with governments, Afghan government um, particular, um, and sort of how they are trying to sort of negotiate uh, and encourage uh, enforcement of you know anti-smuggling laws, you know drug production, et cetera, uh, to facilitate uh, pharmaceutical sales. So that's another one that I'm I'm, I'm looking at. That one's really early, but as um, I've been sort of trying to get access to archives from certain companies, um, pharmaceutical companies um, to, to little success the the, the present moment. Um, and then the other one is the healthcare uh, sort of looking at sort of drug addiction and historic it's really sort of historicizing drug addiction, which is another thing that I don't talk a great deal about, but as um, sort of searching for. Uh, apparently, there were three. Uh, there was a British, two British doctors that were in Afghanistan in the 1930s through the 1950s that wrote extensively about healthcare issues with drug addiction. Um, I've been trying to find their books um, quite a bit. Um, again, uh, unsuccessful so far, but I'm trying to sort of dig back deeper into the issues of healthcare and how drug addiction is perceived by different groups within sort of the Afghan uh, society.
0: Now, so plate, that's where I'm your, at right now. Yeah. Your plate <laughs> is full. I can't wait to talk to you more about these these projects. But for now, um, I encourage all listeners to uh, go out and get a copy of Poppy's Politics and Power, Afghanistan and the Global History of Drugs and Diplomacy. Because not only is it original, but it's uh, thought provoking and extremely timely. And so, James, thanks so much for being here to uh, to chat with me about it.
1: Thank you very much, Luke, and thank you, everyone, for taking the time to listen.
0: Brilliant. All right, take care. You too.